Now, you and I are going to die because, you see, the Bible teaches that you and I have a body. But you, the real you, your intelligence, your memory, your personality is going to live forever and ever. You will never die. And you're going to spend a million years, a billion years, in one of two places. Well, good morning, Illuminate. It's great to be here with all of you, those of you here in the room, those of you watching online. My name is Hudson, and I'm excited to bring the word in this series, Heaven and Hell. I've personally really enjoyed this series. I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time thinking about death. Maybe it's my profession. Maybe I'm just a little twisted in the head, but I spend a lot of time thinking about death and specifically life after death. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you don't think about death because it's kind of depressing. But the reality is as human beings, at some point in our life, we're all confronted with the reality that someday we are going to die. There's a quote, and I've been butchering it for years, so I just go with my quote now, and it's this. Everyone dies two deaths. Everyone dies two deaths. The first death is the moment that you understand, not just know, but understand that someday you are going to die. That's the first death. The second death is when you actually take your last breath. I was pretty young when I came to know this, and maybe I knew before this, but I had a fifth grade teacher. And this fifth grade teacher, every day in class with a group of 10-year-olds, would tell us, you only have to do two things in life, pay your taxes and die. Why that's what she wanted to tell a bunch of 10-year-olds, I don't know, clearly an amazing teacher. But it was actually a few months before I turned 22 that I understood this for the very first time. See, up until this point, I just wanted life to go faster. When I was in middle school, I just wanted the school day to end so I could go home. I just wanted summer to come. I just wanted to get to high school. Then I wanted to get my driver's license. Then I wanted to graduate. Then I wanted to go to college. Then I wanted to turn 21 to go out and be a real adult with my friends. And every moment came and I wanted to get to the next one. But then 22 was coming and nothing special happens at 22. And I was like, man, that went by fast. College got here, 21 got here. And I remember I was playing on the worship team at the church I was attending one Sunday. Remember the moment and I look out into the congregation and there's a man in the front row, full head of gray hair. And the way my mind worked is, man, 22 came really fast. Before I know it, I'm gonna be his age and he's pretty much dead, so I'm gonna be dead before I know it. Yeah, I was a little naive, and no offense to anybody, I was naive at 22, but I remember that moment has stuck with me. That's when I understood, someday, sooner than I think, I am going to die. Now, this is depressing to think about. However, I would argue that our ability to understand and think about our death is actually God's mercy in our life. See, death is actually this red flag being waved over our life, saying something is not right, you should figure it out. And that's the basis of every worldview in religion, trying to answer, why are we alive? What's the point of existence? And how do we derive some sort of purpose or meaning out of death? Now, some worldviews or religions simply desire to ignore or deny death. But denying death isn't an option because death is unavoidable. Other worldview or religions maybe try to fight or delay death, but delaying death is only temporary because death is universal. Others maybe just cave into death 
giving up all hope in the process, but embracing death is unsatisfying because death is unnatural. This is what separates the Christian worldview and the gospel of Jesus Christ from every other religion or worldview because what we get in the gospel of Jesus is death being confronted head on right in the middle of history. And at the foundation of the gospel, we have Christ's resurrection, which shows that death does not have the final word. Death is not the most powerful thing in the universe, but Jesus Christ came and punched death in the face, defeating it. This is the hope that we have as Christians, and this is the premise that Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we'll be hanging out this morning. And here's my big idea as we jump into it. We can live boldly for Jesus now in our earthly bodies because of the future hope that we have in our resurrected bodies. We have hope today because of the future we have in our resurrected bodies. Today we're gonna look specifically at verses 35 through 41, and we're gonna answer the question, what kind of bodies will we have in the resurrection, and how does this give us hope for living today? To define terms and make sure we're on the same page, what I mean by resurrected bodies or the resurrection of the dead is that our hope as Christians is not to live someday in heaven as disembodied floating spirits that just kind of cruise around the universe. No, our hope is actually a transformed, resurrected body, and this will happen upon Christ's return, and this will be our final state for all of existence. And it was precisely the Corinthians' denial of this truth that led Paul to write this chapter. They denied the resurrection, and Paul said, not only is that illogical, but that has some significant implications for our lives today. To begin, I wanna summarize the first 20 verses in 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul begins to lay the foundation for his argument for the resurrection. And he begins by saying, let me remind you the gospel that I came and preached to you. Oh, and by the way, this gospel is not a secondary issue. This is not something you just put to the side, maybe believe it, maybe you don't. No, this gospel is of first importance. Now, the very core of that message, the very foundation of that message is that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and in his resurrected body went and appeared to a whole bunch of people. Brings me to my first point this morning, which is that the resurrection of Jesus is foundational to the gospel. You do not have any gospel without the resurrection. This is important because then Paul draws a really interesting comparison in verse 12. He says that because Christ was resurrected from the dead, we have hope that we too will be resurrected. He actually says that if Christ was not resurrected, then we will not be resurrected. Or if we are not resurrected, Christ was not resurrected. And this has some serious implications. In verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith has been in vain. Paul goes as far as to say, then we are misrepresenting God. So if there's no resurrection of the dead, this whole thing we're doing right now is pointless. We should go home. Because also, in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we're people most to be pitied. No resurrection, might as well go home, we should be pitied. But Paul quickly gets to verse 20 where he reminds us, but Christ was resurrected from the dead, thus we have hope that someday we too will be with him in the resurrection. Paul's argument thus far is Christ's resurrection proves we too will be resurrected someday. And this gave the Corinthians all sorts of issues. They did not like this. And what really has them hung up is this idea that we would be an embodied 
creature for all of eternity, embodied humans for all of eternity. The Corinthians were Greek, and the Greeks were dualistic in their thinking. They viewed the body and the spirit or the inner self as being two separate non-related things. And they viewed your inner self, your soul or your spirit as being intrinsically good and your body as being intrinsically bad. This led way to a first century heresy called Gnosticism where they said, Jesus cannot have been fully man. There is no way that God who is good could take on a physical body which is bad. And I say that because I think in 2023, we've actually just gone back in time and accepted this neo-Gnostic worldview where your inner self is good and your outer body really doesn't matter, it's just flesh, do whatever you want with it. We see this actually begin to affect our thinking about things like gender and online avatars and dating app profiles and the metaverse and AI technologies and our overall sense of self. What does it actually mean to be human? And unfortunately, I think it's also maybe even unconsciously begin to mess with our idea of what the afterlife looks like. Maybe you've played the Wii video game, they have the me characters and it's this floating head with no neck, little floating body and some hands and some feet. And they're just kind of popping around in this all white room. It's kind of how we envision ourselves, just this disembodied creatures floating around as spirits in the universe. But that's not at all what it's actually going to look like and that's not at all what it means to be human. Actually, to be human is to have a body and a spirit equally together and cannot be separated. We consider the Garden of Eden. This is pre-fall, pre-sin in the world, God creating man and woman to dwell with him for all of eternity before sin got into the picture, and he created man and woman with bodies. They were physical beings. My second point for this morning is that God's design for humans in this life and the next is to be embodied beings. This has been covered a number of times in this series, but I think it begs a quick explanation. So what happens when we die then? And what we see in Jesus' words is when we die, we will go to be with him in paradise. He says that to the thief on the cross. And what we know about paradise is Jesus is gonna be there and he calls it paradise. This is gonna be a really good place to be. However, it does seem that for a temporary time, we will be disembodied in whatever this paradise is. Because it's not until Christ's second coming where he defeats death once and for all that we will be resurrected, like the song says, with the saints. And that is when we will be given our embodied, transformed, resurrected bodies to dwell with him for all of eternity. We will be prepared for the new heavens, the new earth, and our bridegroom. So what exactly will these resurrected bodies be like? Paul begins to dive into it in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised and what kind of body do they come? The Corinthians rightfully so has some questions. All right, so say the resurrection is true. Say we will get a resurrected body someday. What will it be like? And this has been a question the church has asked for centuries. In the medieval period, the question went like this. So say a Christian is eaten by a cannibal. It was dark times in the medieval periods. Say a Christian is eaten by a cannibal, and as the cannibal eats the Christian, their body is absorbed and dissolved into the cannibal's body. Again, this is super dark to think about. But then how does Christ resurrect that body? It's a good question. For many of us, we ask similar questions like, what will the relationship between our bodies now and our resurrected bodies be like? 
Are we resurrected in our prime? Do you get to pick what age you're resurrected at? I hope you get to pick how tall you are because I want to be taller in the resurrection. Just going to throw that out there. It, it, but specifically, I just want to be taller than Pastor Jason <laughs> because I need to get some payback for a three-on-three basketball tournament that happened a couple years ago at the men's retreat. Even though, truth be told, I'm not smart enough to guard the guy who writes my paycheck in a basketball game. Instead, I was guarding one of our elders. His name's Kyle Marr, and he's also taller than me, and they won the game because he posted me up, and I had no shot. So in the resurrection, I hope to be taller. For many of us, these questions stem from innocence, maybe some joking around, but just some genuine curiosity. But for the Corinthians, they were asking these questions to disprove the resurrection, and Paul was having none of it. We get this in his response in verse 36. You foolish person, he's getting after him. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not in the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So Paul says, all right, let's talk about the resurrection. Let's just look at nature for a minute. Take a seed, for example. For a seed to sprout into something new, it must first go into the dirt and die. I've done zero farming, gardening, any of that in my life, so I wanted to fact check Paul. So I hop on YouTube and I Google a time-lapse video of a seed growing into a plant. It was kind of fascinating. But sure enough, the seed goes into the ground and before it can sprout, begins to die and decompose into the ground. And Paul says very nicely, and that will be like your body. Before it sprouts into something new, it must first die. Now, both the crop from the seed and our resurrected bodies, there's gonna be a difference between our bodies now and our bodies then. A seed is different than the plant. However, there's also gonna be continuity. Just like a strawberry seed does not produce a carrot, I will still be Hudson and you will still be you. So there is gonna be some continuity between these two things. We kind of think of Jesus' body after he was resurrected. There was this sense that the people around him didn't recognize it was him. There was something different about him. Yet once he revealed himself, he was recognizable. And keep reading in verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthly one is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So Paul, once again, he goes back to nature. He says, once again, look at the world around you. Do you not realize that each body given to each creature is fit perfectly for their environment? Birds are given wings, so they're fit for the sky. Fish are given gills, so they're fit for the sea. And now, just look at the differences in all these things. Take the stars, for example. Look up and you see the stars and the moon and the sun. They're miraculous. They're amazing things. But they're all different. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying, why would we then doubt God who has proven his ability to create the right thing for the right environment in seemingly infinite varieties? Why would we doubt that he could not create for us a resurrected body suited for an eternal and spiritual existence? And that's exactly what the next few verses address. Maybe this is where we get some of the best idea of what these resurrected bodies will look like. And he does this by comparing them in four different ways. And just to give you an overview of what this is gonna say, this is my third point, our resurrected bodies will be superior in every way to our earthly bodies. If we know nothing else, our resurrected bodies will be superior 
in every way to our earthly bodies. We pick up in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body and it is raised in a spiritual body. So we're gonna break these sets down. The first one is perishable versus imperishable. This one's easy enough. The reality is every last one of us is headed on a road towards death and decay. Our skin sags, our hair grays, our teeth fall out, and we can do some things to speed up this process. We can do some things to slow this process down, but inevitably each and every single one of us is headed towards decay. Our bodies are perishable. However, in our resurrected bodies, they will be imperishable. They will not experience decay or decline. The next set is dishonor versus glory. As already mentioned, our bodies are not intrinsically evil. What we do know is every single person who was born is born under the headship of Adam and his sin. And so our bodies are not intrinsically evil, but they are all tainted by sin. They are temporal, perishable, tainted by sin and thus dishonor. But our resurrected bodies, they will be free from the curse of Adam and will be instead resurrected into the righteousness and glory of Christ. We will have bodies suited and prepared for our new eternal spiritual state, ready to worship and glorify God for eternity. Our bodies that are sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. And it's weakness versus power. The decay of our bodies show that they are characterized by weakness. We get sick. We get tired, we get hurt, we pull our hamstrings. When we're playing football with the youth students trying to show them who's boss, they end up looking like boss because we got pulled hamstrings. <laughs> our bodies are weak. But our resurrected bodies will be characterized by power. We don't know exactly what this is gonna look like, so I love the way that Martin Luther puts this as a way of thinking about it. As weak as it is now, the human body, without all power and ability when it lies in the grave, just so strong will it eventually become when the time arrives, so that not a thing will be impossible for it. We think of maybe the way that Jesus in his resurrected body seems to have teleportation-like powers appearing and disappearing as he pleases, walking through locked doors. Our bodies, when they are raised, will have the fullness of power of the resurrection inside of them. Lastly, we get natural versus spiritual. Now this doesn't mean a body and a non-body. But rather, the natural body is just simply one that we've already said. It's corrupted by sin, weak, frail, aging, prone, and facing the inevitability of death. But what is sown natural is raised spiritual. You get the spiritual body is still a physical body, but it's suited for spiritual things, empowered and animated by the Holy Spirit. This is similar to what we experience now inwardly. When we are saved, we're filled with the Spirit. And though outwardly our body wastes away, inwardly we're renewed by the Spirit daily. This is picked up by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This inward renewal we experience now in the spirit, we will experience outwardly as it encompasses both body and soul in the resurrection, being prepared for the things for us, worshiping God for eternity. 
will experience this in the resurrection. Paul finishes in verse 44 by repeating his thesis statement for this section, his argument. If there is a natural body, we can conclude there will be a resurrected body, a spiritual body. In verses 45 through 49, Paul then begins to compare Adam, the first Adam, with the second Adam, Jesus. And he does this to show the timeline, the order in which these things must happen, but also in the manner in which these things will be created. So he says this, first we have the natural. We all are in that stage right now. We have our natural bodies. But after the natural, then comes the supernatural. First we are born in the dust through Adam, and then we will be born through the life-giving spirit of Jesus from heaven. So for now, we wait. For now, we wait in our natural bodies, tainted by sin, dishonor, perishing. But God is good. And in God's goodness, he did not leave us to wait empty-handed, but rather he gave us the spirit. Here's what it says in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. For those who are found in him, who are called sons and daughters, who are called heirs, in him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. It's currently the spirit inside of us, giving us a foretaste of what is to come. That is the seal of our inheritance for our resurrected bodies that we will get through the faithfulness in the second coming of the second Adam, Jesus. So we've covered the what and the how of the resurrected bodies. But I don't want any of us to miss this morning is the very real implications of this text for our life. Paul has just reminded us how our bodies are like decaying seeds. They came from the dirt and our bodies will return to the dirt one day. I've had a front row seat to this reality for the last few months with my grandfather who ended up passing away a couple weeks ago. He was 91 years old, he loved Jesus, and he spent his life telling other people why they should love Jesus. So in many ways, this is just a celebration of a life well lived. But it was the last few months that really made me stop and think, especially with a text like this. My grandpa was always the most fit guy I knew, always challenging us kids to arm wrestling matches, which he always won. And he would wake up every morning to do his devotionals and do his exercises. And the man truthfully cruised through his 70s, cruised through much of his 80s, traveling the world, running around, tons of energy. But it was the last couple years, turning 90 and then 91, where we began to realize that our bodies are perishing. Even if it doesn't seem like it, even though it seems like you have forever, you don't. He didn't die of really any sickness or disease, just slowly over the last couple of years, different things on his body stopped working. We were with him a couple months ago. We were able to see him, he lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And there was one afternoon that we had come home and there was a couple of steps to get up into his condo. And typically he'd been able to get right up those stairs just fine, even in his older age, but he had a surgery that he didn't really recover from the way he hoped he did, and he had to be helped up these stairs. So Brooke and my wife was talking to him later in the evening, and she just asked him what he was thinking about, and he verbally expressed how frustrating it was for him, being so healthy for most of his life. Even a few months earlier, being able to climb up those stairs, and now need help to get up those stairs. See, what he realized, and what we were realizing, was that his body 
was perishing and it was never gonna be restored this side of heaven, this side of the resurrection. And sure enough, next time I saw him a couple months later, he was in his casket. Now friends, this is the fate that awaits each and every single one of us. I'd actually say that my grandpa had it better than most of us. A healthy, full life into his 90s, are you kidding me? Most of us probably won't have something like that. Most of us, our existence won't end with something that pleasant. For many of us, even right now, this passage hits home because our current existence in our natural perishing bodies is not that pleasant. And if that's you, I just wanna say, like, this is your hope. This passage, I know this is easier said than to actually experience, but star 1 Corinthians 15. Go back and read it when you're having bad days. This is our hope, and this is the hope that we have as Christians. It makes me really sad that people will use this reality of the world. If there was a God, I couldn't believe in him. How could he give us these bodies that are perishing? Look at the world, look at the evil. There's things like cancer and there's disease. How could you believe in a God? I would say, how can you not believe in God? Only the Christian worldview has an answer for this. This is exactly what it just looked like in 1 Corinthians 15 that brings meaning and hope to death that is inevitable for every single one of us. As Christians, we can live with hope that even in this life, with the intrinsic evils that come from natural bodies in a natural world, our hope was never here in the first place. Our hope was never in these bodies in the first place. We look forward to the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And that's exactly the conclusion that Paul draws out for us at the end here. It says in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. This is a mashup of Isaiah and Hosea. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The death and decay we experience right now is caused by one thing and one thing only, and that is sin. And Paul spent the entire time in 1 Corinthians 15 from the beginning to the end laying out the gospel because what the gospel says is, yes, though we're all born under the failure of the first Adam, it is because of the faithfulness of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, his faithfulness, the one who lived the perfect life we never could, the one who died the death we deserve because of the sin we are guilty of, but the one who was vindicated in his resurrection, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he currently reigns and rules as king over this world. Because of his faithfulness, those who have believed and trusted in him as a Lord and Savior, you've been forgiven of your sins. You've been deemed as justified. You've been seen as righteous before the God, the creator of the world, and you do not face death. Someday you will be glorified in a resurrected, imperishable, and spiritual body, and that is the hope that we have in this message, the gospel that Paul says is of first importance. Free from sin, free from decay, prepared to worship and glorify God for all of eternity. This is why as Christians, we don't mourn the way everybody else does in this world. We stare at death, we square up to death, we lift our chin up high and we say, death, where is your sting? Jesus reigns, Jesus has victory, you don't. Because when these bodies go into the ground, we have hope that they are dying so something new can be raised. So what does this mean for us today? Paul tells us, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 
knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what do we do with all this? We go and we live boldly for Christ. We are steadfast in our proclamation of Jesus. We are immovable in our convictions and we abound in the good works that God has laid out for us because death has no sting. Sure enough, I saw a perfect illustration of this this morning. I follow a group on Instagram. They do Jesus marches all throughout the country. I got to connect with them when they were in Phoenix. Some of you were even a part of that march we did here. And they go right to the downtown of these cities. And in a super peaceful way, they gather thousands of Christians and they walk around and they pray over the city. They declare that Jesus is king. They pray against the strongholds of the city. And they throw this awesome worship party, worship service in the middle of downtown for everyone to hear. Well, yesterday they were in Portland and before they would do their marches, they actually do an evangelism training, which is really cool. However, and I was watching the video and they said that during their evangelism training, Antifa showed up. And I don't know if it was actually Antifa or just a bunch of punks and ski masks, but they show up and they start during this evangelism training, start chanting, hail Satan. And they go up to some of the security guards that were there and these kids in ski masks start just cussing at them being mean to him. And right in the middle of this crazy picture, I'm thinking a fight's gonna break out. There's this lady, probably in her late 60s, and this kid's in front of her, ski mask on with a skateboard in hand. And I'm thinking, he's gonna hit her with this thing. Are you kidding me? He hits her hard enough, like she's done. And he's cussing at her, spitting at her, and she's standing there smiling her face. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And I'm thinking, this woman gets it. She is not worried about this body and the flesh. She is ready and she knows there's a body prepared for her so she can stand there and say, even if death comes right now, who cares? I got a better place I'm going. And as long as I'm here, I'm standing boldly for the gospel of Jesus. And I'm telling this kid who's cussing at me, Jesus loves him. That is the hope and the confidence we should have because of a passage like this. Paul says it was the same thing for him. He says, this is the reason I wrestled with beasts in Ephesus. We don't think he actually wrestled with animals. It was the people there that wanted to kill him because of his message. But he said, this was the confidence I have, that this life is not the life I live for. My hope is not in this body. My hope is for a body to come. And that changes the entire way I view my life. And this should give us confidence as well. I wanna ask you a couple questions as we close this morning. First of all, where do you stand with God today? Is the gospel of Jesus that you've been forgiven of your sins and because of his resurrection, you do not have to face death? Is that of first importance in your life? And if you wanna know more about that, I'd encourage you, come find me or the prayer team or just circle the cross on the connect card in that seat back in front of you. We'd love to talk to you more about that. It's actually the biggest question you have to answer in your entire life. For those of us that consider ourselves Christians, does our boldness for Christ in this life reflect the hope that we have in the life to come? Does our boldness in this life reflect the boldness we have in the life to come? But maybe you lack boldness. Is your lack or the only little bit of boldness you have in Christ because you're not totally confident in your life to come? I encourage you to wrestle through that with God. Our big idea for this morning, we can live boldly for Jesus now in our earthly bodies because of the future hope we have in our resurrected bodies. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in the middle of history, you showed up to confront the thing that most of us fear most, death. And that through your word, we can know clearly that we do not need to fear 
anything in this life, even if beasts were to come for us demanding our life, that is okay because we have a greater life, a greater body in the resurrection when your second coming happens and we stand arm in arm with the people of the faith. Jesus, I pray that this message today would allow your church to step back into the world, into our communities, into our jobs, into our families and friend groups with a newfound confidence and boldness in you. Jesus, this whole morning is built to ascribe worth to you because you are worthy of all of our honor, our glory, and our praise. We pray this in your name, amen.